Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would answer patron emails. So let's do that today. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor and someone who loves to answer patron emails. This first email is from patron Rachel from Portland. She writes, I dated a woman briefly, and I'm trying to let go of her. She has done some odd things that I can't figure out. For example, she walked into the break room at work and announced to a handful of people that she attempted suicide a couple of nights before. So just chiming in, she dated someone and she uh, is having a hard time letting go of her, or at least back when she wrote this email. And she has a bunch of questions about her behavior. And she's like, does this person have borderline? I don't really know. So let's, so for example, she walked into the break room at work and announced to a handful of people she had attempted suicide a couple nights before. She downloaded all her childhood trauma to me on our second date. She shit talks everyone. She ended our dating relationship for the second time, then started it up again randomly. She will randomly state she doesn't like something, like talking about poop, then later she tells me she pooped and what it was like. She constantly talks about her ex. She will allude to things that seem inappropriate, like you you don't want to know what's going on in my head or you don't you don't know what I'm actually hoping for. On our fourth date, she asked if I snored and talked about how her dog could get along with my cats if, and if I wanted kids. She seems to think she cares. It seems to th- it seems to think she cares about people, but doesn't ask questions. Uh, oh, she seems to think she cares about people, but she doesn't ask questions and doesn't really listen to me much. She is extremely intuitive, almost on a psychic level. She has been in inpatient care in the past for anxiety. She has body dysmorphia, for example. She showers once a week to avoid seeing herself. She covers mirrors and she doesn't eat regularly. I'm trying to figure out what it is about this person that has me reeling. Does the way I describe her sound like it aligns with some category of personality or attachment issue? I'm trying to parse out what my stuff is and what her stuff is. I feel like one or both of us has borderline traits, but probably just because I've listened to that podcast recently. Pretty much my enduring question still bugging me every morning is, what the fuck was that? End of email. So first off, it's impossible for me to know without assessing the two of you for several sessions. And if I did do that, I couldn't talk about it on the podcast. It's just really hard. If I actually, I mean, from the way you're phrasing it, it certainly points in a certain direction personality-wise. But if it's one thing I know, I really need to sit down with people to really figure out what's going on. You could be misinterpreting things. You could be blowing things out of proportion. You could be not blowing things out of proportion enough. It's just impossible to tell with an email. And I think you you recognize that. But for educational purposes, let's look at some of the notable behaviors here without assess, without diagnosing her, but pointing towards what sort of things we look for in personality or things I look for. So let's review some of the notable things here. She seems to make you feel uneasy. She has been traumatized as a child. She talks bad about people behind their backs, according to you. She seems obsessed with her ex. 
She announced to a group of people at work that she has attempted suicide a couple nights prior. She seems hot and cold with you. On your fourth date, she talked about moving in together and being together for the rest of your lives, seemingly. She doesn't listen well. She's very intuitive. She went to inpatient for anxiety, and she has body dysmorphia. For example, she can't take a shower because it risks her noticing her own body. So if you look at personality disorders, it does align to some extent with borderline. As I've talked about before in other episodes, in order to really be confident in a diagnosis of any personality disorder, I have to work with someone for five to 10 weeks before I can even begin to make some kind of statement around that. So certainly we can't rely on someone's account of someone else over email and diagnose someone. But again, for educational purposes, borderline, you know, there's some signs there. So if we look at some of the signs, we see childhood mistreatment. We see suicidal ideation, but there's a lot of possibilities why she could talk about suicide. She seems hot and cold to you. One moment she wants to marry you and another moment she wants to break up. Again, sort of a classic borderline um, cliche or stereotype. Certainly is true for some people with borderline, but not all. And there's a lot of reasons why someone could be hot and cold, like one minute they could like you and the next day they could not like you. So everyone's done that before. So it's hard to know without assessing her. She's, she's obsessed with a past relationship, certainly a sign of borderline. But again, a lot of people are obsessed with their past relationships. She has impaired empathy, according to you, uh, which is also a sign of borderline. But, you know, according to you, uh, you just might have feelings that you feel like she doesn't pay attention to enough. And maybe you have the issue and not her. And you acknowledge that it's hard to know. She has quote unquote anxiety, as you put it. She went to inpatient for anxiety. It's actually uh, kind of a common thing among people with borderline to experience their disorder through the anxiety lens. People with borderline will, will often say that they have tremendous anxiety. And it's true. They do have tremendous anxiety. But that's not the primary diagnosis. They have anxiety because of the personality structure that is terrified of being abandoned, terrified of being alone, terrified of having to rely on their own ego, which they have not much of a contact with, and it freaks them out. But when when we describe anxiety disorders, it's usually because the anxiety is the foundation of the condition, meaning that if you have panic disorder, you know, I had panic disorder and there was nothing beneath the panic. Once I addressed the panic and reduced my symptoms, there wasn't something beneath it. With people with borderline, you can address their anxiety, but it doesn't get rid of the underlying condition. And it might help them a little bit for sure to have treatment for anxiety and, you know, CBT for that kind of thing. But it's not going to cure the underlying cause of the anxiety. So the other thing is that a lot of people with borderline will have an easier time admitting that they have anxiety than admitting that they don't even know who they are and they feel a tremendous emptiness on the inside or they feel like they're not good enough for love. Those are harder things to admit to people. It's easier to say, ah, you know, I have a lot of anxiety. It's also unlikely that she was in inpatient just for anxiety. 
Although some people do go to inpatient treatment for anxiety, it's, it's much more often that people go to inpatient treatment for suicidality. Uh, you know, a danger to self and others. You need to be watched 24-7. Being anxious doesn't usually justify an inpatient stay. It can, for sure, if it's really severe. But uh, so it's sort of a sign that maybe she does have some sort of characterological issue and uh, she frames it, or maybe it was even told to her that she was an inpatient for anxiety. You also mentioned that she's very intuitive. This is actually a sign of borderline. It's also a sign of narcissism, basically cluster B, uh, histrionic as well, and antisocial psych- psychopathy. People who have been through mistreatment growing up, which is all the cluster B personality disorders, or all the personality disorders for that matter, uh, have various different ways of coping. And one of the ways that children will cope with the mistreatment is to try to game the system. They're being abused or they're being abandoned or all the above. And it's within their interest to really figure out the adults in their life, to really pay attention to the emotional states of those adults. Because if they can intuit or or notice the emotional state of those around them, then they can better uh, manage those people to get their need to get their own needs met. So, for example, if you have an alcoholic father and you're five years old, it it is definitely within your interest for you to notice the signs of how drunk your dad is, because for some alcoholic parents, when they become uh, you know a certain amount of intoxication, they can become angry and abusive. And so with kids who aren't being mistreated when they're five years old, they don't have to pay that much attention to their parents because their life doesn't really depend on it. They, you know, the five-year-olds who are being treated well, they just know that there's a consistent amount of love and attention and safety that will come from their parents. For five-year-olds who are being mistreated or have alcoholic parents or whatever, they learn, I got to pay attention to people. And so they get from a very early age, they get really good at essentially reading people's minds, not through a psychic sense, but just picking up on body language. They will pay attention from second one and whether it's passive or active, they notice what makes you tick. The other thing for people with borderline at an early age is they also learn how to manipulate people. And I use, I use manipulate in a sort of neutral way. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. All kids know how to, quote, unquote, manipulate their parents, right? It's just the thing that, that people do. Maybe a better word is um, to affect things or to motivate people to meet your own needs or something. You know, it's, it's a common uh, skill that we all have. For people who are being mistreated – one of the ways to cope with that mistreatment is to really figure, pay attention to what's going on and with other people, and then also trial and error, figure out how to manipulate those people so you can get your needs met. So for example, with an alcoholic father who sometimes gets really intoxicated and then becomes a, a physically abusive, the child, the five-year-old might figure out, okay, I got to watch, I got to watch dad. And then as dad starts to drink more, I need to start acting like I'm defenseless and I need to compliment him or I need to point out 
you know, these are just all various things that may or may not work. But for some kids, they might learn, look, if I put down my dad and I say that he's a drunk piece of shit, then he actually becomes ashamed and he goes into the garage. So there's all these different skills that people in those situations learn that they retain into their adulthood. And so because people with borderline have been relationally traumatized in some way, abandoned, abused, they they believe that the only way they can get love and attention and safety is to really pay attention to other people and then make sure that you manipulate them so that they will be the optimal person to give you your needs. The problem with this approach is that it basically worked with the uh, problematic parents when you were a child because that was the lesser of two evils. But with people, when you grow up and you have adult relationships, typically this actually turns people off and then people will run away from you, furthering the abandonment, maybe even abuse you, furthering the abuse. And that's why these sorts of people end up in therapy offices because they've just had a string of really, um, you know, self-destructive relationships or, uh, or, or what they believe to be just a string of abandonments when in fact uh, m- some of it at least is due to the way that they try to garner their uh, love and safety from other people. It's completely out of their awareness and it makes total sense as to why they have it. But anyway, so sometimes these people can be called very intuitive. You said like almost on a psychic level. People who develop these, um, you know, necessary ways of coping can appear like they're psychic. Like I said, because they just, they're really good at intuiting what other people are thinking and they really pay attention and they learn and they sort of catalog things. So the other way, so, but again, I'm not diagnosing her. I don't know. And you didn't talk about any of your own issues. So, you know, who knows what's going on. Another lens, you know, aside from the personality disorder lens, we can look through the schema lens of schema therapy. And it sounds like she could be, uh, hard to know, a candidate for someone who qualifies for the first four schemas, which are associated with borderline. The first one is abandonment schema. For example, a statement like, I worry that people I feel close to will leave me or abandon me. So people who walk around with that statement kind of rolling around their head, like, I, I worry people are going to leave me. You know, I'm pretty sure people are going to leave me. This can result in people being hot and cold because you, you desperately need their – there's various different ways of coping with that schema because it's very distressing to walk around like, oh, my God, people are going to leave me. One way is when you find a good person to cling on to them. And that's uh, one way of coping with this abandonment schema. The other way is to avoid relationships altogether. And when things get a little rough, you just reject everyone. So that's where the hot and cold comes into. Also, if you feel like you can only get people to love you when you're suffering, you might start talking about things, uh, moments when you're suffering like suicide. You might feel like in order to get people to love me and pay attention to me, I have to talk about my suicide attempts, which that might be true. Now, it's impossible, again, for me to know what's going on with her. She could be legit suicidal. I'm not going to say that she's gesturing or lying about that. I don't know. But it is 
to some extent, a sign of that uh, schema of abandonment and also a sign of borderline. People with borderline and people with a schema, when they talk about suicide, 99.9% of the time, it's legit. So it's not like they're lying about it. it it's this underlying uh, motivation of like, no one's going to love me. I'm worthless. I'm empty. I'm broken. Why go on? And it's, you know, really a tragic thing. Because of the mistreatment, they have not been able to access their self. They don't, they don't have a connection with who they are, and they don't have a connection with their self-worth. And they've never really been treated as if they have self-worth. This is why I find tremendous, uh, I don't know, life satisfaction or job satisfaction, professional satisfaction from treating people with borderline effectively so that they can actually connect with their self-worth and their self and begin to love themselves and begin to accept love from others without self-destruction, self-destructing. It's, uh, you know, difficult to do, takes a long time, and there's a lot of transference, counter-transference, but helping someone to, uh, you know, recover from that, from those schemas is, is, is just wonderful. There's, there's so much growth that happens, you know, like, uh, when I'm working with someone who has borderline, say, a moderate case of it, the percentage growth that they will go through in a typical year of therapy is like, you know, the amount of recovery they're going through when therapy works well is like 100 times faster than people who aren't suffering from a personality disorder. Because when I'm treating someone without a personality disorder – most of their resources are already available to them personality-wise, and we're definitely doing work, but the amount of improvement or healing that they can actually have is, you know, on the scale of things, much, much smaller than those who have characterological disorders and have never been to a therapist that actually knows how to cure that, or they've never been to a therapist at all. So anyway, it's, it's it can be very gratifying. And so that's... Um, the abandonment schema. Also, so the abandonment schema can be exemplified by that desire to cling on to people and then reject them because it, it, there's just different ways of coping with this notion that's constantly in their head of just like, you're going to get abandoned, no one loves you. And also talking about suicide to kind of garner attention and, and love from other people. Also, this, in, you know, being very intuitive. When you are constantly worried about being abandoned, one of the ways to cope with this is to, is to try to game the system by being very uh, attentive to what the minds of other people are doing. Another schema here, the, you know, the first four out of 18 schemas that are involved in um, a case like what you're presenting here is emotional deprivation. The statement that people agree with here is, no one has ever really been there to meet my emotional needs. So this is very much similar to abandonment. In fact, one might even say they're just different flavors of the same thing. But the abandonment schema is people are going to leave me. And the emotional deprivation schema is no one's, even if people are there, they're never going to really love me. No one will ever love me. No one cares. No one cares about me. No one really cares about anybody. Everyone's selfish, that kind of thing. And so what you'll see when people have that schema rolling around in their brains all day, in their souls and spirit all day, is they will be very anxious, quote unquote, because 
they are terrified of of the constant loneliness that they feel and they're they're terrified of people pulling away and not meeting their emotional needs they can also be very obsessed with their past relationships because they are frequently thinking and noticing that their needs aren't getting met you know they they wake up in the morning and they're just like i'm not getting my needs this is all mostly subconscious they're just like no one is loving me i'm not getting my needs met i'm alone and a solution to that is is if people actually just pay attention to me and love me and are good relationships for me but no one's doing that and my and my you know ex-girlfriend certainly didn't do that and so there can be a certain obsessiveness to that of just like why didn't my ex-girlfriend love me you know that what was wrong with her or me or you know another schema is mistrust um you learn early in life that it's better to just not trust people. And people agree with statements like, it's only a matter of time before someone betrays me. It's only a matter of time before someone hurts me. People are going to hurt me. It's just going to happen. And the behaviors that you point out that sort of point to this schema is shit talking. Because when she's hurt, when her feelings are hurt, she transforms that into anger because it's consciously more acceptable to feel anger. And then she talks crap about other people because somehow they hurt her in some way. And, you know, and she just has this general mistrust. She might even uh, distort things like because of her just general mistrust, someone might have, you know, resting bitch face and she interprets it as they're being a bitch to her. And so uh, she just, you know, because of her mistrust, she just like assumes that people are up to no good and that can make her um, – you know, quite hurt and then can cause her to be angry at people. Also, uh, she makes you feel uneasy. Uh, This is another part of the mistrust. When people have the mistrust schema, sometimes one of the ways that they cope with that is to have their guard up and also to have kind of a, a very suspicious vibe with other people. And, you know, they're, because of the way they're raised, they, they just do not trust other people, but they want to trust people and they want to be in relationships with people. But they're just like, well, I'm very suspicious of you. I'm very And they give off this. And when you get a vibe from someone that they're very suspicious of you, you know, think about like you're an African-American young male and you walk into a 7-Eleven and the clerk is like constantly watching you all the time. It makes you uneasy. Even though you're like, hey, I'm just here to buy some chips and a soda. Uh, Yeah, I think that person thinks I'm going to steal something, which is kind of bullshit. Just that energy of hostility and suspicion will make anybody feel uneasy. And so when you have a partner, someone that you're dating, and they have a schema that you're, you're up to no good in all likelihood, but they're trying to suppress that because they want to believe, because they want to connect with you. They're going to give off kind of a suspicious, hostile vibe, and that's going to make you uneasy. The fourth and last schema that is exemplified in the account that you talked about is shame, the shame schema. People who agree with the statement, no one could love me if they saw the real me. So this is a shame schema. It's just like, I'm ashamed of myself. I'm no good. And this manifests for people with borderline uh, in a lot of different ways. One of the ways is through eating disorders and body dysmorphia. It's this self-punishment thing, or 
a desperate attempt to be acceptable to other people. When you're treated like crap and you're made to be ashamed of yourself by your upbringing, you retain that schema. It's not just something like, well, my parents treated me like a piece of shit, but I know I'm not a piece of shit. When you're treated like a piece of shit from, from day one until you know, you're 20 years old, or even just day one until you're five years old, you just assume, oh, I am a piece of shit, and I'm never going to be good enough. But maybe if I try really hard by starving myself or by being obsessed with my body or by, sh you know, maybe that will help. Also, when I look at myself in the, I mean, every American, when they look at most Americans, I'll say, who look at, at themselves in the mirror has some amount of shame because of the amount of internalized fat phobia that we've in, you know, internalized. Even quote unquote thin people will shame themselves for something, you know, the way their skin looks or, I mean, the amount of. Uh, the, the possibilities of self-shaming for one's body is endless. I mean, it is endless. And we just live in one of the most fucked up societies that has ever existed on the planet regarding this. I mean, it is normalized. Uh, you know, you will have people who won't even want to be naked in front of their spouse. And I'm quite positive that was not the case in the old days. <laughs> I'm quite positive of that. Not that the old days didn't have problems, but my God, like uh, the amount of – so uh, everyone has it. But when you're – when you have a baseline assumption that you're a piece of shit, then you're going to look for evidence as to why you're a piece of shit subconsciously. And one of the ways that is easy given our culture is to shame our bodies. So body dysmorphia can be a thing. Now, I don't know if she has body dysmorphia, but you said she exhibited that. But so who knows? Also, suicidality. When you're ashamed of who you are and you just feel like you're a piece of shit, then you just think, well, you know, I I'm a burden to other people. I should just take myself. I should just take myself out of this life because I I'm a bother to people and no one loves me, which, again, makes me very sad. And when I treat people like this, one of the things that I work on is the basis of their suicidality first, because we've got to keep them alive. So all of this distress of all these schemas of abandonment, emotional deprivation, mistrust, and shame, all this is very stressful, as you could imagine, and very distracting. And so guess what? You don't have empathy. You, you have a hard time exhibiting empathy for other people. Think about the worst day of the past year for you. Your cat died or you got dumped, or you lost a job, or you got diagnosed with a terrible illness, or you were very depressed, or you were very anxious. or you know, Think about the worst day of your life. Do you think you had much empathy that day? Do you, think you had a, do you think you were a good listener that day? Do you think you had the capacity to listen to someone's small issue that they had at work? My guess is, is you didn't. If, if you're normal, uh, <laughs> like me, in this way, it, it's hard. You know, when you're suffering, you might have some empathy, but it's not as great as it would be otherwise, right? Well, people with these schemas and with these personality issues, they're in a, they're in a constant state. It's just their regular life. I mean, you'll talk to them and you'll be like, okay, on a scale from one to 10, how distressed are you today? And they'll be like, oh, I don't know, probably a four. And, you know, I'll say, well, you know, what do you mean? Like, because you seem like you're in a good mood. And they'll be like, oh, no, no. I, when I'm in a good mood at best, I'm like 
I, I don't think I've ever been like a one on the distress scale. I'm in constant stress about who I am and if my husband is going to leave me and if my wife actually loves me or if she's going to cheat on me, you know, there's this, there's this constant buzz. And so it would make sense that given that ongoing, and then there's spikes of course of anxiety and uh, hurt and abandonment. And it's going to be hard to have empathy in those moments. Now you have empathy and people, people will say, you know, Oh, well, you know, borderline people, they have no empathy or narcissistic people. They have no empathy. That's wrong. It's empirically wrong. We know it wrong scientifically. And it's, uh, it's, um, I don't know. What's the, what's the word for racism that we could apply to personality disorders? It's stigmatizing. It's uh, prejudicial. It's oppressive. It's marginalizing. It's wrong. It's just wrong. It's there. It's building on a stereotype that is propagated on the internet. People with borderline have tremendous empathy. In fact, sometimes if you talk to them, they'll be like, I feel like I have more empathy than other people because when they were young, they were taught to pay attention to other people and to care and to really try to game the system to get their needs met. And so they really notice other people's uh, feelings. In fact, sometimes some, these people will call themselves empaths because they're just really what they'll for some people what they'll frame it as is like they just have this energy um, lightning rod that or antenna or you know satellite dish that just really picks up other people's emotions. My conceptualization is they just have an extremely well developed skill. Uh, that they developed when they were young because they needed to. And yeah, their emotional satellite dish is much bigger than, than other people's because it had to be. And so therefore, when other people are feeling things, they really notice it. People with these personalities can also distort other people's emotions. But like one of the things that uh, I will see in people with these either these four schemas or borderline uh, narcissism to some extent too, but or in histrionic, but let's just stick to borderline for a second, is that when I am feeling something, sometimes they'll notice it in me before I notice it. Like I'll talk about a client I had, I don't know, 15 years ago or something, and she had borderline and she knew, we knew, we, you know, I'd worked with her for many, many years. And, you know, I'd be, this is back when I would see, you know, eight, 10 clients a day. And it was, you know, it was a lot of clients and she, and so it's not a lot of time for me to like self-reflect, which is an important procedure for any therapist to do. But anyway, she would sit down on my couch and right away, she'd just be like, Oh, you seem tired. And right away I'd be like, no, I don't feel tired. And then later I'd think, Oh, I think I was tired. I, I don't even think I don't. Even, I think she knew I was tired before I knew I was tired. <laughs> so now, at the same time, she would say things like, "I think you think I'm an idiot," or "I think you don't want to uh, be with me as a as as you, as you know." I, she would frequently think that I wanted to fire her as a client. Now that was wrong. I I know myself well enough to know that was a hundred percent wrong. I had no impulse to fire her as a client ever, but she frequently thought that. So there are distortions to that giant dish, 
based on their own schemas because they just see the world through that. You know, they just assume that people are going to abandon them. And so they just assume I'm going to abandon them when I'm not. And they're also really good at picking up other people's feelings. So it's weird to be on the um, other sort of a, the target of that because sometimes they'll they'll be very good at picking up your emotions. And other times they'll be completely off, uh, completely off. And you'll and you'll find yourself defending yourself, which is which. If you're in a personal relationship, it's hard. But since I'm a therapist for people like this, I, I gives I have the luxury of really taking my time and explaining. Okay, I hear you that you think I'm going to abandon you. Um, I, I'm here to tell you I'm not. But let's talk about it. You know, what are your fears? And so therapy is geared towards having those relational conversations for corrective experiences and self awareness. Um. A personal relationship sometimes aren't. But anyway. Okay. So, uh, patron Rachel from Portland, I hope that answers your question. Let's answer another email. But first, let's take a break. And when we get back to the break, let's continue with this episode. All right. We're back from the break. If you haven't joined us on our YouTube live streams every Thursday at 2 p.m. Seattle time, I encourage you to do that. I will, uh, for an hour, I do a Q&A with people, and sometimes Umberto is there. So go to YouTube uh, and do that. Also, join us on our Facebook page because that's where all the action is, where I put out polls and I do tougher bluffs and I post pictures of my cats and... Uh, yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> also, buy my book if you haven't already called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision, particularly if you're a supervisor. Uh, I, I think it's a it's a short read, easy to read, I think, and I th- is a condensed um, uh, advice. And and it's evidence based. I you know I did I read you know thousands of of uh, research articles and looked at all the data on supervision and uh, reported on it. Also, uh, become a patron. And even if you are a patron, please, if you can, uh, become a patron at a higher tier. You know, we have the lowest tier, but we have higher tiers where it means that you love us even more. And it also means that you get other kinds of swag, like you get swag at the $10 level at this point, you know, October 2019, or this might actually come up in November, I guess. (laughs) Um, at 25, you get a mug, and at 45, you get an hour of consultation with me or Bob or Umberto or whoever. Um, also, if you want to hire any one of us for a consultation, uh, we can provide that, usually over the phone. It's not therapy. It's for educational or consultation purposes, particularly if you're a clinician. Sometimes clinicians will call me and want to consult about a case or their own development or something. Also, if you're having trouble with the premium feed, email me. And if you do email me for any reason, please go to the website, use the contact us page. That's how I like people to email me. I just looked at my email uh, situation and uh, <laughs> so funny. Do I say email account? I just looked at my, or just, I should just say, I just looked at my email. Okay, I'll just say it. I just looked at my email and Patreon Dr. Joel asked a question, uh, the following. What do you think about uh, statements made by some people that there are only a very that there's only a weak relationship between early attachment pattern and adult attachment pattern. 
Yeah. So this is complicated. And it's important to know how this research works, which I'm, I haven't done a huge deep dive into the research on this, but I feel like I know it well enough to say the following. So sometimes, you know, so people who are attachment oriented or, you know, attachment proponents like me will often talk about how early, chi- early childhood experiences affect your attachment style and, and your general attachment approach when you're a young child. And that is retained into adulthood and that can cause problems because of the way you're treated when you're young. But when you actually look at the research and, and, and you study attachment style when children are very young, like at, at one year old, 18 months old, and then you study them when they're 25 years old and you try to see if there's a correlation between attachment style, the attachment styles being secure, avoidant, preoccupied, and uh, fearful or disorganized. And uh, according to theory, that that should be retained, meaning that secure 18-month-old children should be secure when they're 25 and avoidant infants should be avoidant when they're 55. And now, uh, so that's a very simplistic take on the theory. And that was proposed in in essence, but it was never uh, stated by attachment theorists that that was for sure. Um, it, it, attachment's much more complicated than that. Certainly, the way that you're treated early in life affects your attachment orientation as you age, but you're not done developing at 18 months, right? So, for example, you could experience a wonderful childhood up until the age of two, and thus, if you're measured at that age, you will have a secure attachment style. And then when, you know, post two years old, you could have a really crappy life. You could get bullied at school, which is tremendously traumatic. You could, your parents could die. Your mom could suddenly start suffering from a mental illness or substance abuse, or there could be a divorce. One of your younger siblings could have some sort of disorder that really disrupts your family. Uh, and so on. You could also live in a terribly racist society that hates you that you didn't really notice when you were two years old, but by the time you're 16, you absolutely do. And these can alter your attachment because you've experienced other um, you know, experiences that will affect the way that you see the world and the way you see yourself and the way you see others, the way you cope with all that. The opposite can be true, too. You can be treated very badly. You could be abandoned, abused up until the age of two and thus have some insecure attachment style. And post those years, you could be treated very well. You could go to therapy. Um, You could have a, a, a very secure relationship with a grandmother or, you know, who knows? There's life doesn't end at eight at 18 months. Right. So it makes sense that there isn't a super strong association between your childhood attachment and your adult attachment. The other thing is that a lot of times these studies look at the four attachment styles, you know, as disorganized, avoidant, preoccupied, and secure, and they try to correlate that with adulthood. The problem with that is that it misses kind of the point, which is that the bigger picture is you have secure attachment styles and you have insecure attachment styles. Typically, we talk about the three insecure attachment styles of disorganized, preoccupied, and avoidant. But really, it's more important to understand, and I always tell this to people, 
uh, when I'm teaching supervisees is it's much more important to understand for yourself as a clinician and for your clients where they stand on the security insecure spectrum. Everyone has uh, no one is no one's completely secure. In my estimation, just based on arbitrary number scale, the highest secure person is like 80% secure, maybe 85 or something, maybe 90. But no one is completely secure. So everyone has to depend, especially under stress, when they're, you know, everyone's been dumped. And no one deals with being dumped well. Even the most secure person doesn't like skip down the road and say like, haha, I got dumped. I'm so secure in my relationships. No, you know, everyone has a reaction that is, um, you know, that's stressed and has some distortions and has some overreactivity and has some odd ways of coping with that. So everyone has some element of avoidant or, and or preoccupied and or disorganized. And so it's just a matter of scale. So when we measure people's attachment styles, uh, and, and insecurity to security when they're young, that does tend to be stronger correlated to when they're an adult. So if you have a two-year-old who um, is mostly secure, then they're, they're very likely to be mostly secure as an adult. If you have someone who is avoidant as a two-year-old or a one-year-old, uh, they may not be avoidant when they're 25, but they might actually have switched to preoccupation. So that's just, you know, important thing. If someone's disorganized at one, they might have graduated to a higher level of functioning, which could be avoidant. And so sometimes the research is like, oh, well, you have a disorganized kid and, and they ended up being an avoidant adult. There's no correlation between attachment styles. And the, that misses the broader picture of just like general insecurity uh, is retained through into adulthood and people morph. And, and whenever I present this to people, uh, students, they, sp I, I tell them to spend a lot of time trying to figure out their own attachment style because it's important to know for your own good as a therapist because it's it's very important. And almost all the time, what I get back from people is, well, I feel like I'm ninety percent this, but I'm also a little bit that. Um, even for myself, I am mostly of of I'm mostly secure, but of my insecure side, I'm mostly avoidant with a dash of preoccupied. I said that funny, preoccupied. Um, and uh, so it, it, it's not like everyone is a distinct category. Occasionally people are. Occasionally people are like, oh my God, I am avoidant through and through. I don't have a single ounce of preoccupation in me. But you push avoidant person far enough, they might become preoccupied and vice versa. Anyway, so that's another thing to point out. The other thing to point out is that it's hard to measure attachment style. It's There are ways that we've decided, protocols and procedures and coding things, that we've decided as a field how to measure attachment style in children and adults. But it's not like a blood test. Uh, a lot of them, all of them, are observation and interview. And it's if when you actually do this kind of work with people, especially infants really, but adults too, it's like, like, let me give you one example. When you, when you um, measure a 25-year-old's attachment style, one of the things that you ask them in, on the, in, in the uh, standardized interview is you ask them, tell me about your childhood. It's just this general question. Or when you had difficulties as a child, what happened? 
So it's this really general question, and you don't have a lot of time. It's not like you're you're going to ask the, for them to talk for ten hours. You're just you probably have like three minutes, ten minutes to you know, have kind of a back and forth about that topic. And for for some people, they will say, "Oh, well, my you know my child is pretty good," and uh, tell me more about it. Well, I don't know. My my dad worked, and he came home, and we had dinner right away, and I just I don't know. I just felt like my my family was pretty warm. So let's say that someone has a general answer like that. Well, sometimes what that means is they were secure because that's what it sounds like, right? It's like they don't have any complaints. It sounded like a nice environment, and it points in the direction. It's you know one of the one of the uh, it's a tick on the side of this person has a secure attachment style as an adult. But it's also possible that they're avoidant, which is one of the insecure attachment styles, because when you're avoidant, you learned early in life to not actually code memories because it's too painful to pay attention to those things. You know, I was talking earlier about how borderline people and preoccupied people learn to really pay attention to other people and and uh, remember, you know, okay, when when dad is a little drunk than this and when when mom does this, then that means that. And when I do this to them, then they do this. You know, it's, they, they figure all that out at an early age subconsciously. The, the avoidant um, narcissistic road, the schizotypal and schizoid road, is to just avoid relationships. And one of the ways that you can avoid them is you just don't pay attention. So to avoidant people, they will often answer the question, you know, what was your childhood like with a very positive answer, because to them, that's all that they remember. It's actually been shown in lab tests that avoidant people, they don't even encode memories very well. They, they, they have impaired memory function, and they also have impaired memory recall. So they have impaired memory encoding and impaired memory recall. Because when they were two, as they were experiencing some sort of stress in their family and mistreatment, it was just better to not remember this shit because if you remembered it, then it, it would plague you. And so the child would just, one, they don't pay attention, they don't encode the memory, and they can't retrieve the memories that they managed to encode. And so you ask those people, they'll say, yeah, my life was great when I was growing up because they just don't remember the bad times. It doesn't, they have a harder time recalling that. So how do we know the difference? Now, there's ways you can sort of tease it out with someone. But let's say someone's right in the middle there where you're just like, well... It kind of sounds like when I was interviewing this this uh, client that it sounds like secure because they were talking about all the good times and it seemed like this. But I kind of feel like they weren't going into that much detail. And so maybe maybe they're the avoidant. You know, this is a big distinction that, you know, to categorize someone as avoidant and ins- or secure. This is like a fundamental difference that you have to decide on these um, on these assessments. How do you know? You know, well, it's in the eye of the beholder. The person who's doing the assessing makes that call. Now, they might make the call that it's right down the middle, but they might make the call that it's it's secure, or they might make the call that it's avoided. And this throws off the quote-unquote truthfulness of the assessment, right? So when we talk about research that shows that your childhood attachment doesn't really correlate to your adult attachment, another thing you have to think about is like, how do we know anyone's attachment style anyway? Because it's, it's, there's no blood test for it, like I said. There's no way to 
you can't take out a ruler and measure someone's attachment style. There's, it's, it's all based on observation, even of the children, right? Let me give you an example of that. So when you're measuring, uh, the t- you know, the standard procedure for measuring with the stranger uh, ex- uh, protocol, uh, listen to my uh, 11 hours of attachment uh, deep dive, which is available only for patrons, by the way. To I, I, do, I, I did 11 hours on attachment theory. And I probably did, I don't know, an hour and a half just on the stranger experiment. But anyway, to uh, the history of it and, you know, um, Mary Ainsworth and blah, blah, blah. It's a very fascinating story. So listen to that. Many of you already have. But anyway, so in the stranger experiment, when we, uh, you know, measure kids' attachment um, or, yeah, I'll just stick with that because there's a lot of ways to measure kids' attachment. But anyway, you, uh, one of the key moments is the so the mother or the father brings the child the infant the 12 month old 18 month old child into the lab room and there's toys around and there then a stranger comes in and in that moment uh you code the child's behavior so let's say uh but a key moment let's try a key moment is uh when the parent leaves the room alone with the with the stranger, okay? And then a, maybe the key moment is when the parent comes back into the room and you code for that behavior. So secure attached, when, when, the, reu, when the reuniting happens between child and parent happens, the secure kids will run up to the parents and be like, oh my God, you're here, I, I missed you. And... They, there might be a little bit of a warm exchange. They might be a little upset. And then after a little bit of time, they go back playing with the toys. The avoidant kid, when there is a reunification, the, the, the avoidant kid doesn't really notice when the parent returns, doesn't notice when the parent left. Or they notice, but they don't let on that they notice. The preoccupied kid, when the parent returns to the room, uh, is starts screaming and runs over to the parent and I can't believe you left and and, and the the child might never go back to the toys because they're terrified of the parent leaving again and the child might even punish the parent by hitting them or screaming at them or getting angry and turning away from, you know being very demonstrative of their up- upsetness. The disorganized kid is very confusing. I'm not going to go into that because uh, I don't have time. But so I just described to you, you know. There's a fourth description, which is too complicated to go into here, but there's four different categories as you're observing the child when they're reunified with the parent. And you're trying to go, okay, is, is the kid secure, avoidant, preoccupied, um, disorganized? And uh, now let's say that the kid, the, the parent comes back into the room and the kid runs over to the parent. Now at this point, we're like, okay, not avoidant. Right, because uh, avoidant kids don't even they either don't notice the parent had returned because they've learned to turn off their radar of that, or they they're acting like they don't notice or something. So we're looking at a kid now. We're like, okay, looks like secure or preoccupied. We don't really know. The kid's running up to the parent. Well, this, let's say the kid gets kind of angry at at the parent, and let's say this is a younger kid. Let's say the kid's like eleven months old. And was particularly distressed when left alone. And the kid is like a little bit upset, but not overly so. Not, not, 
tremendously upset. Also, what if as you're watching the kid, you're like, I sense anger in that kid, but I also sense the kid isn't really expressing it in a very demonstrative way. But I get the sense like the kid's really angry. Well, how do you code that? Also, if it's in the gray zone, do you say, okay, that's secure? Or do you say, oh, that's preoccupied? Now, there's a whole science to this, and there's, a, you know, there's all these codings that you do. And it's, you don't just rely on that one moment. But what if you have a lot of gray zone moments? How do you categorize? So when we study attachment and how it correlates throughout one's life, it, it's, a, um, it's, it's a mistake to believe that people live in these distinct categories all the time because they don't usually, and that you can easily measure that with one of the protocols because, as you know, as I've been demonstrating, there's, there's gray zones sometimes. It's also a mistake to think that uh, attachment style is set at age 18 months because it's not. Why would it be? I mean, the whole point of therapy is to make people more securely attached. So if therapy can change your attachment style, then certainly other experiences can change your attachment style, better for worse, right? So anyway... Uh, thank you, patron Dr. Joel, for answering that question or for asking me that question so that I could go on that little rant. All right, let's give a shout out to our um, highest patrons. We got Jill from Maine. We got Danielle from Texas. We got Serenity from California. I know you. We got Chris from Denver. We got Lorelai from Texas. We got Erica. We have Lurie from Seattle. I know you, Lurie. We got John. We got Danielle. We got Sally, Cindy. Uh, and and Kirsten, I know you, Kirsten. Emily, good old Emily from Philly, I believe you're in. We got Phil, we got Jessamy, we got Tara, Tara, uh, um, we got uh, Marianne, Jill, we got Trish from Texas, Aaron from Wisconsin, Adam from Maryland, TR from Redmond, Tara from uh, uh, who we talked to recently on the podcast. Uh, we have Kathy from Indiana, Christina from California, Dennis from Connecticut, Stephanie from Utah, uh, Naz. We got Jennings from Alabama, Auburn. We got Joseph from Seattle. We got Akemi from California. We got Hallie, go to Hallie from Lake Stevens. Noah from Los Angeles. Lauren from Sherman Oaks, California. Natasha from New York. Annette from uh, Norway. Kristen from Vancouver, Washington. We got Richard from Davis, California. We got Kimber from Texas. Kelly from New Hampshire. Uh, my sister from Duluth, Minnesota. <laughs> oh, my sister's nice to me. Um, Amy from Michigan, I believe. And Jared from Roseville, California. So thank you all for being our top level tier patrons. Let's read another email here. Anonymous patron, I'm curious if you've ever done an episode on the topic of children who abuse other children. I put abuse in quotes because there's, a, there's not a ton of information out there on this topic, and what information is out there sometimes offers conflicting perspectives. In general, I sense that this is a highly uncomfortable topic for people to discuss openly. And fair enough, who wants to believe children can hurt other children? This issue has come up in my own therapy. And honestly, I feel sort of alien about it because there's so little information. 
I know I feel the effects of trauma, but I don't feel justified in feeling that way because, well, the abuse was inflicted by a child only two years older than me. And I also feel empathy for the other child who inflicted the abuse. Even my own therapist, who I have been working with for over a year and otherwise work very well with, seems uncomfortable talking about this because it involves two children. My therapist framed it as exploratory kid behavior that scared you. And I disagree, but I'm not sure if I'm allowed to feel otherwise. Uh, And then she asks some questions here. Uh, First off, um, so you asked a question, you know, can actions from juveniles even be considered abusive? You know, so you're asking, can, can teens be abusive and children be abusive? The answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, children can abuse you don't, and you don't have to be older to be, to, to be an abuser. You can be abused by someone. I know parents who are abused by their kids. So age has nothing to do with it. Believe me, size has nothing to do with it. There are uh, women, uh, small petite women who are abusing their six foot five, 300 pound spouse, uh, size, age, siblings, has nothing to do with any of that. It's you know, It can be absolutely abusive. Now, your therapist has a much better picture of what you're talking about, so I trust your therapist in the way that your therapist frames it. But, you know, um, in general, can, can kids abuse other kids? Absolutely. And I'm a bit surprised that you're bumping up against what you believe to be uncomfortable attitudes about that. I guess I could see it maybe, maybe some people being a little uncomfortable with the notion that children can abuse children, but no one in my world thinks that way. I mean, why would you? That's, you know, it's just really silly. Um, Maybe it's because some people, the one thing I do see happen with some people is they have this general notion that kids can do no wrong and that anything bad that they do is somehow justified, which is not a, an inaccurate point of view, but really that grace should be given to adults too. It's not like you cross the Rubicon into adulthood and suddenly you're responsible for everything you do. And before you do, you're irresponsible for everything you do. Um, but anyway, so yeah, sometimes people will just, they just generally believe that kids are um, pure and good and they can't do any, and, and, you know, they might do bad behavior sometimes, but they're generally good on the inside. Um, that's someone who's never worked with kids in a clinical setting <laughs> because kids can be awful. Just any, hum- any human can be awful. Now, what people will say is like, but, you know, like this is one of the things I bump into with my supervisees often is when they look at a fifth grader's bad behavior, they will quickly conceptualize it as acting out some sort of abuse that they've been through, which is probably accurate. But when they have a parent who is abusing the kids, a 40-year-old man who's abusing the kids, they don't conceptualize it that way, but they should because it's all the same. It's Again, it's not like you cross this line into adulthood and suddenly everything you do is completely under your control and completely unjustified when you do bad things. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to make excuses for abusers of any age, but what I'm saying is that uh, if you're one of those clinicians, if you're a, a layperson, you're free to see things however you want to, really. But if you're a clinician, and I bump into a lot of these sorts of people who believes that kids can do no wrong and adults can do wrong, 
I don't recommend seeing the world that way because I don't think it's accurate. And two, it's not very helpful. Like when it's wonderful to see a five-year-old's bad behavior as some result of some insecurity or acting out or something, that's great. When you have a 40-year-old who's doing something bad, it's also very helpful to see him that way. Because if you if you see them as evil or if you see them as purposely doing a bad thing, then you miss all the opportunities to actually help them with their problem that generates the bad behavior, quote-unquote. Anyway, so can kids abuse other kids? Absolutely, for sure. Then you ask, if so, what makes something abusive versus normal child exploration? Uh, you say, obvious example, playing doctor versus something more. So you're not being explicit about what you're talking about, but I'm going to read between the lines. And it sounds like uh, someone who was two years older than you, quote unquote, played doctor or experimented sexually with you, and you experienced it as abusive. And it's maybe a sibling. Sounds like maybe it's a maybe you, you have like an older brother or an older sister who uh, initiated sexual experimentation with you when you were young, and you are now uh, traumatized by that, and you're talking about it in therapy. So, uh, you know, what word do we put to that? Your therapist wants to say exploratory kid behavior that scared you, which is you know probably accurate. Another way of saying that is sexual abuse. You know, it's just potato, potato. It's just how you want to, what sort of words you want to use. You know, exploratory kid behavior that scares you, using a, a sort of broad definition of abuse, that's, that's abusive. Um, the definition that I have for abuse is basically if it's harmful. You know, that's the difference. You know, what's the difference between abuse and exploration? Well, abuse is harmful and exploration is generally not. Um, the harm could be immediate, like you could notice your distress right after the event, you could be afraid of the person, you could feel violated in the moment. So the harm could be right away, or the harm could be delayed, which happens. The symptoms could show up in adulthood, which is really common. So to me, that's the that's how I frame abuse. Now, when it comes to semantics with clients, I don't, I don't shove words down their throat. If someone, but I'm also not going to take words away from them. If someone wants to frame something as abuse, then I'll call it abuse. It doesn't matter, <laughs> you know. Like uh, if I frame it as exploration, if the client frames it as exploration, but I think it's abuse. Um, if they, if the client frames it as exploration that was harmful, but I would frame that as abuse, then what does it matter if I like say, you got to see it as abuse. You got to use that word. I actually had a situation like this years ago in which the, the, it was a married couple and the wife said in session that she was raped by her husband. She loved her husband and she felt, you know, mostly safe around her husband, but there was a moment where she felt raped and the husband was extremely distressed at that word. He was like rape, I mean, yeah, there was this uncomfortable moment and we took things a little too far, but rape, I mean, I, I'm not a rapist. You can't say that about me. Don't use that word. And, you know, I, you can could, you could understand things from both points of view, really. And so we just had this long conversation about the definition of rape and what that means and the implications of using that word, that it doesn't mean that she's... What is, you know, what's she going to do with that uh, knowledge? What does she want to do? You know, she didn't want to go to the cops. She didn't want to tweet about it. 
But in her mind, that was the word she, she wanted to use, and that's the word she wanted her husband to acknowledge. And so these words of exploration or abuse, you know, they, they do have meaning, but it's also like, well, how are you going to use the word, and what does it mean when you use the word? And so some people are really afraid of the word abuse, maybe because they feel like they have to make a report to the government, you know, CPS, or, you know, I could see a therapist being uh, hesitant to use the word abuse with your older sibling because you have a relationship with that person. And if your therapist says, yes, it's abusive, your therapist might be worried that you're going to go to that sibling and say, my therapist said you're, you abused me as a child. And then that could cause all sorts of family strife. Whereas if you frame it as exploratory kid behavior that scared you, then it's less likely to provoke some sort of retaliatory or negative response from your sibling. If you told them that, because if your therapist says, yes, it's abuse and you go home and say, older sister, you abused me sexually when I was a kid. There's no guarantee that your sister will understand the word abuse and how you and your therapist are using it. So I don't know. I'm just speculating as to why a therapist would be a little bit reticent to use the the word abuse. Um, And also a, a point to point out here is that the term abuse is very subjective. You know, there's, there's legal definitions and so on, but, um, you know, what's the difference between exploration exploration that scared you versus abuse? What's the difference between normal, like me and my siblings, we would, um, we would physically harm each other frequently. <laughs> we would scare each other frequently. I was, I was second to youngest, so my two older siblings, you know, uh, got away with things because I was small. And my little brother, I did things to him, you know. Do we want to call that abuse? I don't know. Do we want to call that um, normal behavior between siblings? I don't know. Do we want to call what happened to you, anonymous patron, sexual or expiration that's normal between two siblings that had, you know, some, uh, rea- some sort of trauma reaction from you, which could happen? Or do we want to call it sexual abuse? I, it doesn't, it, it's up to you. you. You are the one who went through it. So you get to decide how you want to frame that. No one else can can take that away from you. And it sounds like you want to call it abuse. So, you know, do it. Don't let anyone get in your way, <laughs> not even your therapist. Um, so, yeah. Now you ask another question. What makes children act out this way? Well, this is a very complicated question that I don't really have time to answer. It depends, you know, why, why do kids abuse other kids? You know, it, it's like, why does anyone do anything? It's a very complicated thing. There's a lot of causes. Uh, but some very common causes are the behavior was modeled to them or they've been abused, so they just displace and they, they, they've been mistreated in some way and, and they want to take it out on someone. Or they have some sort of personality disorder. I mean, kids can have uh, child versions of personality disorders. It's not like, you know, with psychopathy or antisocial uh, it's not like when you're 20 years old, you suddenly just get that disorder. You've had it since day one or since, you know, you were three years old or something. But it just had you just had the seven-year-old version of it. We don't typically apply those labels to kids. We usually, with that one, we use conduct disorder. But with the other, dis, with the other personality disorders, we don't apply those to children. But it's not like the kids don't have the precursors to what we're going to call later as as an adult a personality disorder. So you can have a uh, personality disordered older sibling. 
You can also have an older sibling who has a personality disorder that goes away or what something, you know, like conduct disorder, for example, is uh, often framed as the childhood or teenage version of psychopathy and later in life. Well, people can be diagnosed with conduct disorder at the age of 12 and then uh, not be diagnosed with psychopathy when they're 25. You know, personality is weird and people go through weird phases. Uh, I know some people who were very much psychopathic at the age of seven or 12 and they were that way for a few years and they were very scary individuals and then they just grew out of it. So there's a lot of reasons as to why someone would abuse their younger sibling. Also, you know, sometimes kids just don't even know better. Kids will... um, especially when it comes to sexual exploration, they're not, they're not taught how they're supposed to do these things. So uh, sometimes kids just do bad things and, and they don't, they just don't know they're not supposed to, you know? So there's a lot of different reasons why kids would abuse other kids in the same way. There's a lot of reasons why adults abuse each other. You also ask how this, how is this topic viewed by therapists? Well, I would Anecdote, I don't know, I don't know the research, but anecdotally, I would say most therapists recognize this phenomenon and address it well. You also ask, what are the impacts on victims of abuse inflicted by other juveniles? Um, it's the same effects of any other kind of abuse. Um, your resources seem to be pointing you in a direction that somehow you know, juvenile to juvenile abuse is somehow like this wholly different thing than um, adult to child or adult to adult, it's, it's, or, or child to adult, it's all the same. Low self-esteem, you know, so it, when you are abused by anyone of any age, you, it, it can result in schemas being um, developed, maladaptive schemas, uh, self-esteem issues, acting out, PTSD, depression, anxiety, psychosis, sleep problems, ADHD symptoms, drug abuse, relationship problems, school problems, blah, blah, blah. All the, all the issues. Um, can be caused by any kind of abuse, whether it's child to child or whatever. You also ask, what kinds of families create the right atmosphere for this type of behavior? There's a lot, lots of different types of families. Um, generally, any f- type of family that mistreats children or abandons them or creates chaos. So it's not really a type. Um, you also ask, how is this handled clinically? both for the juvenile perpetrator and the victim? That's a good question. It depends on the goal. There are, there are specialists who specialize in treating perpetrators, sexual abuse perpetrators, uh, and kids. I, I used to work a lot with this population, and I had this guy that I always referred to. I can't remember his name anymore, but he was a guy who worked in North Seattle, and um, he was someone I trusted to work with sexual abuse perpetrators who were themselves children. Uh, Working with the victim, all the normal therapies, it just depends. It depends on the goal, and it's hard to summarize. But, you know, um, for the victim, it's important that they feel validated. Uh, that's, that's, That's really important. But again, it depends on the syndrome that they developed in, re- in response to the trauma. It depends on what the victim wants from therapy. For, for the perpetrator, uh, a very common treatment plan involves helping them to control their emotions because perpetrators often don't necessarily want to abuse other people. And they do it when they've lost control of their emotions. And so helping them with emotional regulation is, is, 
it will lessen the risk of them reoffending. Also, helping them understand moral behavior. This might sound kind of like a weird thing in therapy, but I've done this with kids where I have had kids who have been modeled very bad behavior or they are in a rut or a habit of harmful behavior to other people. And I'll just sit and I would just sit down. I don't do this sort of work work anymore because I don't work with kids anymore, but I would just sit down with them and I would just lay out the difference between right and wrong. I would say, okay, when, when you stole your brother's debit card and took money, How'd you feel about that? They'd be like, I feel fine. And you might think like, oh, he's just being a dick. But, you know, some kids were modeled terrible behavior and it, it doesn't feel bad to them because it feels normal. So I have to teach them to be like, okay, uh, okay, it felt fine to you. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm here to tell you that it was wrong and let's, let's walk ourselves through that. Uh, why was it wrong? Why do you think it's wrong? And they're like, I don't know. Well, it's wrong because you harmed another human being. You harmed them by taking their money. You harmed them by making them feel violated. You harmed them by making them feel like they can't trust you. And morally speaking, that's wrong. It's just wrong. Um, let's, let's talk about another behavior. When you didn't come home for curfew on time, let's talk about the morality of that. Well, that one, probably lesser crime because... Uh, you didn't take anything from from anyone, but you did worry your parents because at midnight they were wondering where you were and they were really they were kind of scared. But they weren't terribly scared because they figured you were just out with your friends. So on the more morality scale, you know, not great, but not terrible. You have to delineate all that out in ter- because for some kids, all the rules seem stupid to them. And so they, they just say, well, you know, anything people tell me to do, I'm, I, I don't really trust it. And so you have to walk them through that so that they understand, you know, taking their brother's credit card was a worse offense than being late for curfew because of how much harm it did to another human being. So I'll, I'll have those kinds of conversations with people. Um, you know, breaking into someone's house, they might be like, I don't know, what's the big deal with that? I'll be like, well, let me tell you, like the emotions that, that have, have now, you've permanently traumatized those people because they thought their home was a safe place and now they don't, they no longer trust their house. They're terrified someone else is going to break into the house and maybe kill them. So really, you know, that kind of talk. Another treatment plan commonality might be to help them recover from the abuse that they went through themselves because they usually did go through some kind of mistreatment. So helping the perpetrator, uh, that could involve that. But there's a lot of different things you can do for perpetrators. Um, Anyway, your last question here is, how common is abuse from children onto children? And the answer to that is, I don't know. It's hard to research because people would have to report it. And most things like this, vast, vast majority of things like this go unreported. Um, I'd have to look up the research on, on but I wouldn't really trust the rates anyway. And usually whenever they do give rates for this sort of thing, they give a range like, you know, 20 to 70% of families experience abuse between child and child. Plus, how do we define the abuse, blah, blah, blah. But in my experience, I would think about 50% of people would say they were abused by a sibling at least once when they were growing up. So I think it's pretty common. Maybe like 10% would say that they were abused often by a sibling. This And maybe I'm thrown off by the fact that I treated a lot of families that had this sort of thing in it. But I would say that 
um, you know, five, 10, 50% of people, if you ask them, did you go through a period of time where one of your siblings abused you regularly? I would guess that, I don't know, five, 10% of people would be like, actually, yeah, uh, my older sister was, ooh, when she was 13, she was a piece of work. I was terrified of her. Um, or my brother would wait until my parents were at home and then he would just pound me. Or um, my sister touched me in ways that, looking back, I think was sexually abusive. So there's a lot of different um, uh, people who will say stuff like that. And again, anecdotally, 5 10%, maybe more. So it's pretty common. And I think the reason why you're asking how common it is because you're wondering if you're normal to have concerns about this and that um, you're also, and you're also, you're and another question you're having here is, is there something weird about me as to why I'm trying to look for information and I don't find it and I'm upset about it? No, there's nothing weird about you. Uh, it, it is one of those topics that the internet just doesn't pay attention to. There's all, there's all, you know, our primary go-to for information today is the internet, right? The internet has everything, supposedly. You want to know something about anything? Like, I just got, um, we lost our power last um, winter because there was this tremendous snow. And Seattle, it, it rarely snows very much in Seattle. Usually it's just a little bit, just for a day, and the roads are usually fine. Um, but last winter we had a pretty big snow, and the amount of snow really weighed down all the trees and trees were falling over on power lines and we lost our power for a number of days. And it was a super big pain in the ass because, uh, you know, me and my wife, we had to, we had to, we had to keep working <laughs> and we lost power. So we didn't have any heat. We didn't have the internet. We were just huddled around I don't know, nothing. We just stood in the, in the living room playing cards, freezing our asses off. But anyway, and we heard because of climate change that this winter might be worse. So, and we live in a part of Seattle where there's a greater chance of there being a power outage and a lesser chance that they'll respond because we're sort of out of the way in a certain way. Anyway, so I bought a generator, uh, a small little electric, you know, gas powered uh, generator uh, just in case we lose power next year because I like to be prepared. Uh, I have a earthquake prepared kit. I have a fire prepared kit. You know, I like, I just like to be prepared and my wife worries about these things and I like to uh, reassure her with my manliness. And so anyway, I bought this, um, this generator, I needed to assemble it because there were these wheels and there were these handles that I needed to assemble this, this generator. I needed to set it up. I need to put the oil in and the gas I didn't look at the instruction manual because the instruction manual was very brief. I Googled it. I went to YouTube and I typed in the model number of my generator and I said, you know, how to start it up. And there were like dozens of dudes in, you know, probably like the Midwest where they need generators all the time. And they were, they, you know, laid it all out there. So we go to the internet and the internet often uh, provides. We have a question. We go to the internet, the internet provides. Where else can we find information <laughs> these days? I, I, I'm old enough to remember most of my life, I didn't have the internet, and I'm always just boggled as to how we did anything. Um, I mean, I remember a time, you know, before the internet when in order to find an address, you had to, 
somewhat like it usually is like an uncle or a dad or a grandpa would have that, that giant book with all the maps and you'd have to look in the key like, okay, where do you find this street? And then, you know, you, you'd find the address in this giant book of the maps of your, of your town. Um, anyway, so we go to the internet and a lot of the information is accurate, but when it comes to psychology, for whatever reason, which I could speculate uh, as to why, most of the information is bad or too simplistic. So it's normal for you to go to the internet and go like, okay, you know, I feel like I was abused by my old sibling and I, I feel like my therapist kind of downplaying it. Is anyone, you know, there's, there's got to be people talking about this and there probably are people talking about it in a way that would be helpful to you, but it'd be hard to find them. And my speculation as to why this is a problem is because one, we have a stigma around mental health and abuse and around anything along these lines. And so a lot of victims and perpetrators for that matter, don't talk about what's happening on the internet. They don't, they don't share because they're worried about being stigmatized. They're worried about being shamed. And that's society's fault. That's our fault uh, as a society as a whole. The other reason why I think we don't see a lot of it is because clinicians such as myself in general don't participate in the discourse on the internet. Uh, the vast majority of therapists, it's getting better, but the vast majority of therapists that I know, especially like 10 years ago, uh, barely had a Facebook account, if that. They certainly weren't blogging. They certainly weren't contributing to Wikipedia. They certainly weren't, um, you know, talking on the news. And, uh, you know, clinicians tend to work in isolation. They sort of like it that way. Professors tend to work in their ivory tower, and they like it that way. And um, they just don't interface with the Internet. And so... Uh, for whatever reason, you know, dudes in the Midwest who like to construct their generators, they love to share that stuff and they share accurate information. But when it comes to a specialist in abuse, uh, the likelihood that they're going to go on YouTube and make a YouTube video is like next to none. Um, it, you know, it seemed to me like every other guy in the Midwest with a generator was making a YouTube video, but it'd be hard pressed to find a professor that makes a YouTube video about anything at all. I'm one of the rare people who bothers to actually post anything on the internet. So, uh, so that's another reason why you were failed by the internet when it came to this topic of sibling on sibling abuse. Now I'm sure there's websites that you didn't find, blah, blah, blah. Um, actually just let me do a quick search. Okay. I just did a quick Google search and there's literally a Wikipedia page called Child on Child Sexual Abuse and also just Child on Child Abuse in general. Now, there's not a ton of information there, so maybe that you, maybe you got there too and you're just like, I, I don't really see much here because um, there isn't because it's Wikipedia. But the last thing I'll say is that it's possible that your therapist is detecting some sort of, I don't know, exaggeration in the way that you're framing it because – your therapist might be worried that you're artificially working yourself up in a way that is unhealthy for you. Maybe you have a pattern of doing that. I'm just going to throw that out there. Obviously, I don't detect that in your email, but I, I don't know you, so who knows? But that would be another thing to ask your therapist about. I, I would just ask your therapist about this whole thing. I'd just be like, so I want to call it abuse, but you seem to not like that word. Why? Can you tell me why? And you know, maybe there's a good clinical reason why your therapist doesn't want you to go down that road. Uh, I would just have that exploration. But I would also not 
bow down to your therapist's words if you don't want to. You're entitled to frame your life the way you want to, for sure. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself and please take care of other people because everyone deserves that. (laughs) 